Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Siren and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. And then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses to testify. This fellow never stopped speaking against his, this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Then the high priest asked Stephen, Are these charges true? To this he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here not even enough ground to set his foot on. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way. For 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own, and they will be enslaved with and mistreated. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said, and afterwards they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. And then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision and Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. And so then we are going to read 7 verse 54 to 60. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious, and they gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At, that, at this they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meantime, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And while they, were while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Thanks, Suzanne. Uh, good morning, everyone. Great to see you all here this morning. It's great to do a combined church. And can I encourage you later on, given we are two congregations meeting together, please make sure you say hello to those who you might not know from the other congregation. Uh, can I say also a special welcome if you're visiting this morning. Uh, please keep your Bibles open to uh, Acts uh, 6 and 7, uh, page 1699, if you've accidentally uh, closed your Bibles. Uh, before we get into the passage this morning, will you please join me as I pray? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the one who is the creator of all things, that you are the one who's ultimately in charge. Heavenly Father, please help me now to speak your word clearly. And we pray that by your Spirit, 
that you will change us, that you will empower us to be your disciples and witnesses in this world. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, We have a saying as Australians uh, that we use to describe something that is really good, uh, that phrase, uh, to die for. So, for example, we would say, hey, that cake is uh, to die for. You know, we use that, this, that phrase to describe something that's the best. But what we see in today's passage is that phrase, to die for, used in a different context. As we look at what happened to a guy called Stephen, the first Christian martyr, uh, the first Christian to actually die for his faith. Now, as we read uh, today's passage, uh, you may have found it really hard-hitting. That's uh, a picture of what Stephen went through. And it's hard-hitting. And the thing is, we hear of Christians who lose their lives because of their faith in places like uh, North Korea, in Sri Lanka, uh, in Syria. Uh, And the thing for us is, here in in the West... It's hard for us to imagine what it's like, actually like to die for our faith. But that's not necessarily a bad thing. Because the thing is, we live in a country where we're blessed to have unbelievable freedoms, that we don't have to be nervous about someone coming into church to plant a bomb. And so that's what we live in. But here thing, the thing is, at the same time, it's actually helpful for us to pause and ask ourselves the question, would we be willing to die for our faith? You know, for us, there's actually a more pointed question that we need to keep asking ourselves. And that question is, are we willing to live for Jesus? Because the idea of giving up your life for Jesus... But for us in our context, it's more about dying to ourselves and willing to give up everything so that we can live our lives for Jesus. So the heart of this question here, the actual question is, what are you living for? What's the vision that's driving your life? You see, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, we all live our life according to a particular vision of the good life. A vision that shapes our pursuits, a vision that shapes our identities, a vision that shapes everything about us. And the vision that permeates our culture is one of materialism, where it's all about stuff. That the more stuff you get, the happier you'll be. And if you stuff yourself with stuff, well, whether that's money or assets or toys, then it means you've made it. But the thing is, the basis of that vision is that this life is all that there is. You live for the moment and then you die And that's it. And in the end, there's no real meaning. There's no real purpose. 
There's nothing. Well, our passage this morning presents another vision. A vision which is at the centre of Christianity. And it's the vision that Jesus is the exalted King. The one who's in charge of everything. The one who's the centre of this universe. And it's because of that, it means that Jesus is worth living for. And he's worth dying for. Uh, this morning we're going to see four things. Uh, first, we're going to see firstly Stephen in action. Then secondly, Stephen's speech. Then thirdly, Stephen's death. And fourthly, Stephen and us. Uh, before we get to into the passage though, uh, let me quickly recap what's happened in the book of Acts so far. So the early church has been growing exponentially and it's got so big that the ministry of caring for widows couldn't keep up. So the apostles, they choose seven people to oversee the ministry of the tables and one of those guys is Stephen. And so as we start our passage today, we see Stephen in action and in his spare time from the ministry of the tables, he's actually doing what the apostles are doing where he's teaching people about Jesus. And so we see verse 8 of chapter 6, God has empowered Stephen with his spirit. Where, like the apostles, he's now performing great wonders, he's doing signs, he's doing miracles, and he's debating with the Jewish teachers about Jesus. And he's winning the arguments. And because of this, the, the Jewish teachers, they stir up the people against Stephen. And Stephen is brought before the Sanhedrin. Now the Sanhedrin is like the, the Jewish Supreme Court. And they're the same guys who condemned Jesus to be executed. And they're the same guys that she confronted the apostles back in chapter 4. And so what we're seeing now is that the opposition against Jesus, it's ramping up now. Before it's just theological debates with the Jewish leaders. But now it's the people on the street. They're opposing the message. And so instead of debates, well, it's slanderous attacks. And we'll see later, it gets a whole lot worse. Does that sound familiar to us? Where dialogue isn't respectful? Where you're treated harshly because of what you believe? It's, it's what we're seeing today. Uh, where the Christian view of marriage has come under fire. Where people have been looking to limit our religious freedom. And so it shouldn't surprise us that this is the reality we live now. Now in this courtroom of the Sanhedrin, we see in verse 13, two accusations aimed at Stephen. Uh, please read with me verse 13 and 14 of chapter 6. Verse 13 says this. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place. 
and change the customs Moses handed down to us. And so the accusations that they've made against Stephen, the first, the first one is that Stephen's against the temple, and secondly, he's against the law. And you see, these two things, they're two things that the Jewish people really hold dear to their hearts. Now, after leveling these accusations at Stephen, well, verse 15 of chapter 6 says that the Sanhedrin, they stare at Stephen, waiting to see what he says to himself. Now, it's interesting at this point what Luke, the author of the book, what he says at this point. Uh, Please read verse 15 with me. Luke says this. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. You see, in the midst of all this hostility, Stephen has a face like an angel. A face that speaks of innocence. A face that speaks of peace. You see, Stephen is the one who's calm and composed here. Not aggressive or agitated. And the reason why he can pull such a face like that is because he knows who's in control. And he knows it's not the Sanhedrin. You know, for us, when someone opposes us for what we believe in, it's easy to go one of two ways. We could either fight fire with fire and return aggression with aggression, or the other way is to cower to the pressure, to give up what we believe in and to concede our point of view. But what we see here with Stephen is a third way, which is to trust God. Knowing that God is going to give him the words to say in this situation, just like what he's done before. And that's what chapter 7 is all about. And that goes to our second point, Stephen's speech. And can I say this? For the next 52 verses, Stephen goes for a very long speech, which is actually an Old Testament history lesson for his accusers. And it's a history that they all share. It's a history they're all very familiar about. Now, you could be excused for thinking that Stephen is a little bit long-winded, because this speech that we see here is the longest speech recorded in the book of Acts. Now, I only got Suzanne to actually just read the first part of the speech, because I didn't want us to get too lost in the detail, because there's a lot there. But to summarize Stephen's speech, to summarize these 52 verses, he's basically answering the two charges made against him. That, he's, that Stephen's against the temple, that he's against the law. And so briefly, in answering that first charge, uh, Stephen actually talks about two key Old Testament figures, Abraham and Joseph. So Abraham's the, the father of Judaism, he's the guy from which the nation of Israel came from, and Joseph is the one who rescued the Israelites from a severe famine and settled them in the land of Egypt. And Stephen goes on to make the point that God is everywhere. He's not confined to one spot. He doesn't need a temple. 
So when Abraham was in Mesopotamia, well, there was no temple there, but God was there. When Joseph was in Egypt, there was no temple, but God was there. Because God is the creator, you just can't fit him in a building. And so Stephen sums up this point in verses 48 to 50. Now please turn to page 1702 and have a read of those verses with me. Page 1702, verse 48. Uh, Stephen says this. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? So, by pointing out to the Jewish leaders, Stephen's actually showing them they've actually got the wrong view of God. Because their view of God is too small. It's like when you're looking through the wrong end of the telescope. And for them, the Old Testament history is crying them out, crying out to say to them, see God for who he really is. And that's the thing for us. It's so easy for us to be like those Jewish leaders where we're looking through a telescope through the wrong end, where we have a view of God that's too small. But it's a view of God that fits with us, a view of God that fits our lifestyle, our plans, rather than seeing God for who he really is and us fitting in his plans. It's so easy to think that I want God in my life, but I only want Him in this area and this area, but not this area and that area. That's when we see things the way Stephen sees things. The fact that God is the Almighty Creator of everything, that God is the one who's really in charge, the one who holds all of life in the palm of His hand. If we see God like that, then it makes sense for us to have God be the boss over everything in our lives. Can I ask you, how do you see God? Do you see God the way Stephen sees God? Or are you like the Jewish leaders? The second point that Stephen makes in his speech is that he's not against the law. And in particular, he's not against Moses. But the thing that Stephen points out there is that their ancestors, they were actually against Moses. Uh, Please read verse 39 to 41 with me. Verse 39, uh, Stephen says this in chapter 7. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifice to it and reveled in what their own hands had made. 
So you see, not only were the ancestors anti-Moses, well, they were really anti-the law as they broke the second commandment, as they made that statue of the golden calf. And that really shows what's, that their hearts are so far away from God. But rather worshipping things that they've made, they should be worshipping the one who has made them. Well, as Stephen finishes the history lesson, he drops the hammer on these Jewish leaders as he points out that they are exactly like their ancestors. Uh, Please read verse 51 with me. Stephen says this, verse 51. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and your ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Stephen is challenging the Jewish leaders to wake up to themselves, to stop being like the ancestors, to stop rejecting God, and to stop rejecting God's chosen one, Jesus, uh, the one who the Old Testament has been pointing to. And it's because of who Jesus is. Stephen is pleading with these Jewish leaders, don't let history repeat itself. At this point, Stephen is now given a vision, a vision of heaven, where he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And this vision confirms to Stephen that the way he's been seeing things this whole time, that Jesus is in charge, the vision confirms that it actually is true, as Stephen is seeing it with his own eyes right now. at this point, the Jewish leaders, they just lose it. And they drag Stephen out, out to the city, out of the city, and they stone him. Now, I don't know if you've noticed uh, when Suzanne read it for us, but the death of Stephen actually shares a number of similarities with the death of Jesus. You see, the last words of Jesus on the cross was, firstly, he said, into your hands I commit my spirit, And then Jesus then also says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And what does Stephen say? Verse 59, Lord, Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he prays, verse 60, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Now, whether, Jesus, uh, whether Stephen was doing this uh, consciously or subconsciously, what we see here is Stephen following the footsteps of his Saviour. You see, Stephen is so convinced of the ultimate reality that Jesus is King, that he's prepared to say, hey, I don't care what they're going to do to me or what they're going to say to me, I'm going to keep talking about Jesus. And the reason he can say that is because Jesus is at the centre of his life. You see, it's not being popular here that counts. It's Jesus that counts. It's not my life and comfort that counts. No, it's Jesus that counts. 
not sure about how it is with you when you read this stuff. I'll be upfront, this stuff here, it really challenges me at almost every level. Because it's so easy, even for me, to live for the wrong ultimate reality. Because the thing is, we may not, may, not, may not be in danger of being stoned to death, but the same principles apply. What we see in Stephen, where we too are to walk in the footsteps of Jesus, to stay committed to following Him. And the thing is, there's going to be times when we will face opposition. There's going to be times when it's not going to be easy where the world will keep pushing us to stop following Jesus. But like, like Stephen, we too can be empowered by the Holy Spirit. That we too can stand up in the face of whatever opposition we may face, no matter how hard that may be. And as you know, as we're coming to a time of Advent, where we celebrate the birth of our Saviour, it's timely that remember who, that we remember who Jesus, who He really is. That He's the Son of God, who came down to earth to save us. And it's because of that, well, He's worth standing for. Now Luke cleverly reminds us about something else with Stephen in the passage. Because despite how brutal his death was, there's a remarkable serenity about it. And Luke says that when Stephen finished speaking, the words he uses, he fell asleep. That's a fantastic phrase. Because, of course, when someone falls asleep, there comes a time when they're going to wake up. And Luke is gently comforting us that despite how difficult that following Jesus may be in this hostile world that we're in, it's still worth following Jesus. Because like Stephen, we're going to wake up to eternal life as well. Now in the face of this whole chapter, it seems that Stephen died of failure. He didn't get to convince the Sanhedrin of his view, and he died because he tried to. But what we'll soon see next week, in chapter 8, that even though Stephen's death would be the start of a wave of violent persecution against the church, God will use that persecution to expand his mission even more, as the church is forced to scatter and the gospel is forced to spread outside of Jerusalem and into all parts of the known world. You see, God doesn't waste anything. And who knows how God could use you as you stand firm for Jesus. At the beginning of my talk, I, I used that phrase. I began with the phrase, to die for. As I said earlier, it's a phrase to describe that something that's the best. Actually, that's actually no different to Jesus. Because Jesus is the best. He's the one who brings purpose and meaning to our lives now. And he's the one who will bring eternal life for us in the future. And it's because of all this, Jesus is the one who's worth living for. 
the one who's worth dying for. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, th- we praise you for the Lord Jesus, who's the ultimate King, the one who's in charge of all things. Heavenly Father, we pause to pray for our brothers and sisters who face severe persecution in countries like North Korea, Sri Lanka, and Syria, and the like. Heavenly Father, we pray that you will protect them, that you will strengthen them in their faith, that you will help them to stand firm for you and to not compromise. Heavenly Father, we pray especially for those Christians who have been rejected by their family and friends. And we pray that you will surround them with a Christian family who loves them and supports them and who sustains them in their faith. And so in the same way, we pray for ourselves that we too will be people who won't compromise on our faith, but will keep following you and be people who stand firm in our trust in you. Please help us keep our eyes on the ultimate reality where Jesus is the centre. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.